John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, or son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go over for children's worship and nursery, Miss Brittany and Miss Mary Frances are going to lead them over that way. So a couple of years ago, um, my family was gifted by one of you a, a small satsuma tree uh, for our yard. We planted it in the backyard, and uh, despite it being the first year in our backyard, it, it bore a reasonable number of satsumas. And my kids are kind of citrus nuts. So you can imagine how as soon as those satsumas were consumed, how quickly they began to talk about the next year. And what was their anticipation? That the tree was going to get bigger? And then it was going to bear more satsumas and that every day would be filled with, uh, with great joy in, in my home. And the next year, 2021, would be uh, just a, a veritable harvest. But despite that anticipation and despite me doing everything that Harvey told me to do with the satsuma tree, we had no satsumas. Not a one in 2021. So I did some research, which if you've talked to anybody recently, just means they went on Google. Uh, and what I learned from LSU Ag Center, which is a, a reputable website, is that my experience wasn't terribly strange. A lot of satsuma trees will bear fruit the year after they've been transplanted, and then they don't bear any fruit the next year, sometimes even for a full three years after being transplanted. I considered that good news because it meant I hadn't killed my tree. <laughs> there was comfort to be found in that realization. And last week, we talked about saving faith. And in my sermon, I tried to comfort you. And as you, because as you look at your own faith, you don't see the fruit that you want to see growing there. You look at the, the tree that is your faith, and it looks kind of weak 
incomplete, imperfect. And as we met Jesus' disciples in John chapter 1, we learned that saving faith is always incomplete. It's always imperfect. It's always in process, always growing. And there's a lot of comfort to be found in that. Your faith is incomplete. Your faith is imperfect, and that's not abnormal. However, if you like to take notes, some space in the back of your worship guide to take notes, here's your first blank. However, the incompletion and imperfection of our faith is not a goal or a prize that we should cherish. When we look at our faith and we see incompletion and imperfection, that's not a goal. That's not what we're aiming at. It's not a prize that we should cherish. So when we look at Jesus' disciples and we see the newness and immaturity of their faith, there's comfort there. It shows us that we're not alone. It's even comforting to see heroes of the faith like Noah and Moses and Abraham and King David. You see these guys making horrific errors and committing monstrous sins. And we see these guys and we say, oh, maybe I'm not as doomed as I think I am. But what we can't do is this. We can't look at these examples of incompletion and imperfection and immaturity and sin and be okay with that. I'm not losing sleep over my satsuma tree. It's not dead. But I still want satsumas, right? I want it to bear the fruit that it was planted for. Think about it this way. How do we define faith last week? It's your next blank. You may remember it all from next week. You can go ahead and fill it in. Saving faith includes not only mental assent to truths about Jesus. We believe some ideas, some concepts about Jesus like the Apostles' Creed, but that's not all that saving faith is. It's not only mental assent to truths about Jesus. It's also gut-level confidence, also known as trust in Jesus as a person and as God. These ideas that we think about Jesus have to filter down into our trust, into our guts. That's how we defined saving faith last week. So let's think through that definition of faith then and apply it to ourselves. So if with your mind, if you believe gospel truths about Jesus, so if if you believe intellectually that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he was raised from the dead, that he is our Lord who has called you to a life of following him. And if you trust Jesus then at a gut level, if you really trust that he's your savior, that he's your God, that he is even your friend, even if that faith is incomplete and imperfect, what will that faith do by necessity? It'll change you. It'll change the way you think about yourself and your world. It'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you talk. It'll change the way you love. The kind of faith we talked about last week, though it is incomplete and imperfect, has an impact on us. It exercises itself in our lives. Now, if faith is just a little bitty corner of your life, something you think about on Sunday morning but not otherwise, then you don't believe the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The heart of the gospel is a radical, Christ-centered monotheism. The belief that Jesus is God and that through his death he has purchased you and brought you into his kingdom and called you to be his disciple. This reality, the gospel, demands all of you. 
So if that's what you believe, if that's what you trust, it's going to affect you. Yes, it's going to affect you incompletely and imperfectly, just like your faith is incomplete and imperfect. But that belief and that trust is going to eventually begin to sneak into the parts of your life. If you really trust it, you will see its effects. So while there's comfort, as we saw last week, in seeing the incompletion and imperfection of the disciples' faith, there's actually a more important emphasis to be seen in our text. What's the real emphasis of these two paragraphs in John chapter 1? Here's your next blank. Here's the real emphasis of John 1, 35 to 51. How does our incomplete and imperfect faith grow? How do we bear fruit? How does our faith become more mature? How does it grow and how does it mature? So yes, all of our faith is incomplete. All of our faith is imperfect. But just like my satsuma tree, I'm I'm not happy with that. I'm not happy with that for me and I'm not happy about that with you. That's probably about 100% of, of my job is to encourage you and to lead you and to walk with you in the process of your growth. So I can't look at my sin. I can't even look at my immaturity and say, hmm, I guess I'm just a, I guess I'm just a sinner. I, 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 I guess I'm just immature. We can't look at, at a history of sin and addiction in our lives and say, oh, well, I guess God just doesn't sanctify us after all. I guess I'll never be holy like God, even though he commands me to be in the scriptures. We can't be satisfied with thought processes like, oh, I guess the Holy Spirit is just an inactive, impersonal force that basically intends to chill with me while I watch TV until I die. Oh, brothers and sisters. The incompletion and imperfection of our faith is not a goal or a prize that we should cherish. It's not something that we can even tolerate. So what can we do? How do we grow? Just like these new disciples did. And it's really, really simple your next blank. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. What in the world does that mean, to visit with Jesus? Let's look again at our text, which we began to chew on last week. There's a sentence that gets repeated in both paragraphs on both of these consecutive days in Jesus's early ministry that I believe is the thematic heart of the text. Anytime you see the Bible repeating something, especially in a small section, that's God telling you, hey, 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 pay attention. I'm trying to communicate something to you here. So let's look at verse 39 in chapter one or 35, and we'll read through verse 39, and then we'll jump forward to a later portion in the text. Verse 35. The next day again, John was standing, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. Let's jump forward in the text. Let's go to verse 45. The next day, Philip has come to Christ. In verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus says, Come 
and you'll see. Philip says, come and see. Most of y'all know I grew up in Memphis. And one sentence that I heard over and over again in my childhood, maybe you did too, was, y'all come on by. Y'all stop, stop by for a visit sometime. It's kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies. Y'all come back now. You hear? You, it's resonating at all. But growing up, I remember hearing family members, I remember hearing church members always opening the door for this quote-unquote visit. Just stop on by for a visit. Is this familiar to any of you? Yeah, so what did this visit, this uninitiated visit consist of for the uninitiated? Um, it consists of stopping by unannounced, usually having a cold drink, not like alcohol. This was Memphis. They don't do that. More like sweet tea or, you know, Coke or something like that. Uh, and, and chatting for a while. So usually the, the grown-ups would sit at the dining room table having a drink and the kids would be in the, in the backyard getting filthy. And when we go back and visit Memphis, this is still all that we do. <laughs> we just stop by people's houses unannounced. Meg and I go in, we sit at the table and have a cold drink and the kids play in the backyard or in, in the house with their, with their cousins. What, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, this is literally what he does, right? They say, where, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And they end up crashing at his place for the night because it got too late. So Andrew and this unnamed disciple, whom I think is probably John, the writer of this gospel, when they ask Jesus where he's saying, how does he respond? Come and you'll see. Come on by for a visit. And what do they do? They go on by for a visit. And what's the result of one night at Jesus' place? Andrew comes out of the house calling him the Messiah, calling him the Christ. He goes to his brother and says, we found him. We found the one who is called Christ. He stopped by for a visit, and it transformed his faith. It might sound goofy. That's literally what's happening in the text. When you stop by for no other reason than to be with Jesus, your faith grows. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. That's literally what these guys did. They went to Jesus' house. They came out saying he was the Messiah. The next day, the same thing happens with Nathaniel. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And we talked about this last week. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathanael hasn't even sat down at the table yet. He doesn't even have his tea yet. And he's already saying, Jesus is the son of God and the king of Israel. It's wild. They visit with Jesus. Suddenly, they believe more. Same is true for you. The more you visit with Jesus, the more you trust him. So let's apply that now to the two different sides of our faith. Remember, we, we, our definition kind of has two different angles on it. There's the, the mental understanding, the grasp of these truths about Jesus, and then there's that confidence, that trust in Jesus as a personal God, a God who loves us and who cares for us. So how do both aspects of our faith grow through visiting with Jesus? Here's your next blank. Our incomplete mental grasp of Jesus deepens as we visit with him in the scriptures. When we visit with Jesus in the scriptures, our incomplete mental grasp of Jesus deepens. Reading the Bible is meant to be uh, less an act of piety and more an act of relationship. 
Really, all of the Christian religion is to be less about piety and more about relationship, whether it's prayer, worship, what we're doing here right now, service in the community, fellowship together. It is all an act of relationship with the triune God, and that's especially true of reading the Scriptures. Most of you remember Joe Bernard. Todd mentioned him earlier, a good friend of mine, a good friend of our church, and consequently also the son of of Margot uh, Bernard. Joe does have a new book coming out, I think, in March, which I commend to you. I got a sneak copy, but that's okay. You know, we're, we're, we're friends. You can get one too. Not a sneak copy. You'll have to pay for it on Amazon, but that's okay. Regardless, Joe's first book, The Way Forward, is a book about men and how they can grow spiritually. And there's a lot that I like about Joe's book. Uh, but there was one, like one or two paragraphs that stuck with me. They stuck with me so much they've changed the way I read the Bible. And I included an excerpt from that section in the front of your worship guide. So flip to the front, right behind Madeline's picture. This is like from, I think, the next to last chapter in his book. He starts by quoting J.I. Packer, which is always safe to do. J.I. Packer advises a constant meditation on the four Gospels over and above the rest of our Bible readings. In fact, we can augment the statement. The Gospels are more wonderful than any movies, any television shows, any music, any sports competitions, as well as any books. If a man wants to behold the glory of Christ, he needs to meditate on the Gospels, which is to say, read them slowly, prayerfully, reverently, and submissively. This was one of my big takeaways from Joe's book, and I never considered it before. It's your next blank. A healthy diet of reading and meditating on the Gospels will help you mature in your understanding of Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus? You want to understand Jesus? You want to love Jesus? The more we visit with Jesus, the more we trust him. And we do this when we read the Gospels. What are the Gospels? There are four Gospels in the New Testament. It's the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And every one of these tells the story of Jesus from the perspective of one of his disciples who were there in the flesh. So when we read the Gospels, we're visiting with Jesus. We understand him better, and our incomplete faith grows. So last year, I'd read Joe's book. And so last year in my daily Bible reading, I decided I'm going to read a chapter of a Gospel every day. And I did that last year. It was great, but it was hard. Because what I found is the chapters in the Gospels can be really long, like something like up to 80 verses. And so this year I've changed that, and I've started reading one paragraph of the Gospels every day. Or or not really just one paragraph, like one story, one one full story in, in the Gospels. And that has been much more meaningful for me as I've been visiting with Jesus, reading it and then contemplating Who is Jesus? What's he like? Celebrating whom he reveals himself to be in that text and to interact with him about that instance. It's strange but biblical to pray after reading a section of the Gospels and pray, Jesus, I know that you were actually there when this happened. So Jesus, help me to know you and to know what it was like for you. Jesus, you remember what it felt like and smelled like and sounded like in that place. Help me to have that kind of clarity and understanding of who you are and what you were saying and what you were doing in this place so that I can know you better. 
and so that I can love you better. We sit down with Jesus at the table and say, Jesus, tell your story to me. Tell me your life so that I can know you and love you more. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. Here's a second way, though. It's your next blank. A healthy diet of reading and meditating on other parts of the Bible will also help to fill in your understanding of Jesus. So the other parts of the Bible are important too. So the disciples in the text, when they're trying to explain to their buddies who this Jesus of Nazareth is, to what do they point? What is their understanding of Jesus grounded in? They point to Moses. They point to the prophets. They point to the Old Testament. And then they say, based upon that, come and see him. So while the Gospels, those first four books in the New Testament, are of primary importance in our understanding of Jesus, I think you should read the Gospels every day. But secondarily, the whole of the Bible explains Jesus to us. So here's my question for you. If you look at yourself and rightly sense that your faith is incomplete and imperfect, that your mental grasp, your understanding of Jesus is not as it could be, here's my question for you. It's your next blank. Do you have an actual strategy for your Bible reading? Do you have an actual strategy for your Bible reading that takes into account your season of life, your capacities, and your spiritual needs? Do you have a strategy that takes those things into consideration? In short, do you treat Bible reading like it's a health regimen? Do you take Bible reading and your strategy about it as seriously as you do your family's budget? Maybe at work you set goals and you strategize, but do you think the same way about your Bible reading? I'm convinced that at least once a year, if not more often, you should be revisiting the health of your faith and asking the question, am I reading the Bible in a way that helps me to grow? Now, you have to consider your season of life. You got little kids at home, you're probably not going to spend three hours a day in the scriptures. If you do, that's great, but it might be hard. You've got to consider your personal capacities, how much you can read and understand and retain. But you also have to remember your spiritual needs. You have to look at the state of your faith and read in a way that's commensurate. Too easily, we bend our spiritual disciplines to our season of life and to our sense of our capacities without considering, what do I really need right now? How is the health of my faith right now? We do the same thing with exercise. We do the same thing with eating and finance. I don't have time for that right now. I can put it off. And we know that we're going to pay the piper for that eventually, right? The same thing is true for our spiritual walk. We have to consider what is our spiritual health right now? What do I really need? We can't do with our spiritual growth what we do with these other things. Because we know we shouldn't do it with those other things too. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. So consider a strategy for how you should be visiting with Jesus in the scriptures. But let me add a qualification to that. It's your next blank. To digest the scriptures in a healthy way, you need dialogue about Jesus with Christians you trust. If, if, if you're going to digest the scriptures in a healthy way, you need to dialogue about Jesus with Christians that you trust. Scripture is preeminent in terms of an objective experience of Jesus. You want to know Jesus, you look at the Bible. But nobody reads the Bible in a vacuum. The Bible is without error and without fail. But I'm not. None of us 
are without error and without fail. What do we bring to the table? Each of us, as we meet with Jesus, we bring our own flesh, we bring our own mistakes, we bring our incomplete faith with us. And while I could talk about the Holy Spirit and how he guides us in our reading of the scripture, that's not really the focus of this text. But you know what is? What is emphasized here? Spiritual friendship. We need each other in order to grow. Philip and Nathaniel needed each other. Andrew and Simon needed each other. Why? Because we help each other to see Jesus more clearly. So you need to be able to interact with other Christians about Jesus. And in so doing, we trust Jesus better. That's why you need more than Sunday morning worship. You need at least one outlet in your life for Christian dialogue about Jesus, where you can ask questions, where you can be challenged, and where you can challenge others. You you need more than my voice. I mean, I like to hear myself talk, (laughs) but you need more than my voice in your life to help you know Jesus. I'm just one guy. For you to grow in faith, you need Sunday school or a discipleship group or a women's group or a men's group, some kind of environment where you can talk to Christians you trust about Jesus and in that situation grow. But what if that's just impossible for you? You work 110 hours a week. You just can't find the time for anything beyond worship on Sunday morning. Then dialogue with a dead Christian that you can trust. Read C.S. Lewis. Read uh, G.K. Chesterton. Go back and read the Canons of Dort that I quoted from at length last week. Go read John Calvin. I'm fine with you reading John Wesley. Read Augustine. Honestly, I bet you could even find some solid Christians that are still alive to read, like, I don't know, Joe Bernard, or Johnny Erickson Tata, or Nancy Guthrie, or John Piper, or Tim Keller. (laughs) Really are a lot of options available to you. These Christians who have the weight of orthodoxy behind them, and they can help us to see Jesus more clearly if we just can't find the time to be with other Christians. But truly, we need relationships where we can know and be known. A book will hold you over for three or four months, maybe a year, but eventually you've got to be in the flesh with people where they can see your face and they can see your eyes and your body language and they can know your marriage and your job and the things that really is where the lordship of Jesus is exercised. That's why we're called the body of Christ. When we're together, we experience Jesus in a tripartite relationship. It's a triangle of you the other person, and God in the midst of you, the God who is near. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him as we read the Gospels, as we read other parts of the Bible, and as we do it in dialogue with other Christians. But this is all addressing the mental side of the faith, just the the understanding of Jesus. What about the other side? The gut-level confidence, our trust in Jesus as a person and as God. How does that side of our faith grow? Well, I'd say that side of our faith grows when we do those three things too. When you read the Gospels, when you read the other parts of the Bible, and you do it in dialogue with other Christians, your confidence in Jesus grows as well. But here's another important way that our confidence in Jesus grows as we visit with him. It's your next blank. Our wavering confidence in Jesus deepens as we submit our difficulties to him intentionally and experientially. Our wavering confidence in Jesus deepens as we submit our difficulties to him intentionally and experientially. 
What does that mean? When you have an emergency, in moments of anxiety, pain, anger, confusion, in those difficult moments, where do you go? To what do you cling? In that moment, whom do you trust? When your back is against the wall, when the adrenaline is flowing, and perhaps most poignantly, as I said last week, in that moment of dying, whom and what will you trust then? Where will you go for deliverance, for help, for comfort? And as I I put it to you last week, is your mental faith reflected in a restful confidence that Jesus is personally available to you, that he cares for you, he wants to hear from you, and that when we call out to him, he wants to wield his godness on our behalf. He's more than some guy we can count on. He is God, and he cares for us. Is our mental faith being embodied in that kind of confidence? But no doubt there have been moments of panic and pain when every one of us has run to other lovers, other saviors, other, other satisfactions to dull our pain or to solve our problems. Like Israel turning to Egypt for help rather than to God, we find solace in false saviors. So how do we grow stronger in our confidence and our gut-level trust so that when the adrenaline hits, when the emotions are high, we flee to Jesus? The more we visit with him in those moments, the more we trust him. Some of you know that maybe nine or ten years ago, I had a traumatic experience where I ate something I was allergic to. I was right over in that building. And my throat started closing up. So I called 911, went to the emergency room. Frank was there with me. It was quite an experience. I ended up being fine after some minimal treatment. But the impact of that event was fairly significant on me. Specifically, I started having panic attacks uh, fairly frequently some of which were quite crippling and embarrassing. Because a lot of that began with eating food from a restaurant. Those panic attacks would regularly come when I was eating out places. So one day, right after this had started, Henry and I were eating at Little Tokyo in Mandeville when suddenly I could feel just waves of anxiety coming over me. I felt a tickle in my throat or something and thought, this is it. This is the one. They're going to get me. I'm going down. I started to get tunnel vision. And in my head, I was in full freak-out mode. Um, and as a general rule, when it happens to me, which is a lot less frequent now, I can play it real cool on the outside, but I am just in absolute panic mode. I'm a total wreck inside. So what did I do? I set my chopsticks down. I looked across at Henry, and I said, Man, I just need you to know I'm having serious panic attack right now. And Henry stopped eating. And he said, What can I do? Can can I help you? What do I do? I said, I, nothing. I just needed you to know. There was something about knowing that I wasn't alone in that, knowing that there was somebody there with me who loved me, who wasn't going to leave me, meant the world to me. And Henry was that person for me that day, and frankly, Henry would be that person for you too. And it brings us to the applications. Your next blank. When difficulties come, be intentional to bring it to Jesus. Just tell him what's going on through processes like prayer and confession to other Christians. He's given us a means to just come to him and say, this is what's going on. This is my pain. This is my anxiety. This is my anger. This is my whatever. 
bring it to Jesus. Just tell him through prayer and through confession to other Christians. So when Jesus first calls his disciples, he gave them two things. He gave them himself and he gave them each other. And by walking the path with Jesus and with each other, they would grow. They would grow with struggle. They would grow through pain. They would fail. They would be persecuted. Some of these guys that Jesus calls will be killed for their faith. But together, on the road, their faith wouldn't just muddle along in the doldrums. It wouldn't die on the rocks. Together, their faith would grow. But they had to be intentional about it. Judas hid himself. Judas hid his doubts, hid his sins, hid his intentions from the others, and he fell away, and we cannot do the same. Every one of us will face difficulties and burdens that feel too great. Illness, sin, betrayal, and loss will press on you to the point that it seems impossible to trust Jesus in your guts. And what do we do instead? We try to control things, or we turn to other gods or other providers to give us what we need. But what if we became more intentional in our moments of pain, in our moments of fear, and in our moments of confusion? Think about it this way. I've started thinking of adrenaline as something that God built into me as a divine call to prayer. That when the adrenaline hits, rather than fighting or fleeing... God's calling me to pray. He's inviting me to come to him who is stronger and who is bigger and who loves me and who can do something about this situation because in that moment when the adrenaline hits, to whom do I belong? I belong to the God-man, Jesus, who loves me and who has all authority in heaven and on earth. When the adrenaline hits, I have a cause for prayer. But what about when it's really hard? When the pain is so great that I can't even begin to bring myself to trust Jesus. That's usually a good time to tap into the other resource that you have, which is Christian brothers and sisters. Go to somebody whose faith you respect and confess your struggle, confess your sin, confess your doubt, and ask for their help. Ask them to take you. To Jesus. What, what a privilege that we can take each other before God's throne in prayer. And through these relationships, we grow in our trust if we're intentional to take these things to Jesus. And here's the amazing thing about it. It's your next blank. When you become more disciplined in taking your difficulties to Jesus, you'll see how active he is in your life and you'll trust him more. When you're intentional about bringing these difficulties to Jesus, you'll be surprised by how active he is in your life and you'll trust him more. You know, you hear people say, oh, I see God answering prayer and this and that. And you're like, I don't see him answering prayer. Well, I have to wonder, are you praying? Are you taking these things to the Lord? Are you on your knees before him? This is an intentional, experiential thing we're talking about. This is an in-the-moment, reactive sort of running to Jesus with our problems. All this other stuff about reading your Bible and having a conversation with Christians, that's kind of preemptive work. But this is when the, when the pain is moving. This is when the emergency is happening. In that moment, are we being intentional in that experience to go to Jesus? And what's really cool is that when you go to Jesus with your difficulties time and time again, when the adrenaline hits, when the emergency comes and you go to him, you're going to find two things. Number one, you're going to see Jesus responding. 
You're going to see him answering your prayers. You'll see him at work. And as a result, you're going to go to him more. (laughs) When you see him answering your prayers, when you see him responding, that's going to grow your confidence so that you go to him more. The more we visit with Jesus, even in these moments of emergency, the better we trust him. Now, last year, you'll recall, I preached a, a sermon series on spiritual growth. And I said that God intends for your faith to grow, not to leave it incomplete and imperfect But you have to take advantage of the means of grace, like meditating on the scriptures, praying to God, and depending on other Christians. You see the little graphics we used last year, and we use them still in our announcements each week to remind you these things are an essential part of your growth. Every one of us, just like Jesus' disciples, we're in a process. We don't expect perfection of faith yet, but on the other hand, we're not satisfied with that. Saving faith as it perseveres in our life ordinarily grows and it changes us more and more into the image of Jesus. But how? How does our faith grow? Well, just like Jesus' disciples' faith grew. Spend time with Jesus in the Word. Read the Gospels every day and supplement that reading with other scriptures and with the input of other Christians. And when trials and difficulties come, run to Jesus with them. And if you can't, if you find that hard, pick up your phone. And call one of us, and we'll do it together. The more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. In the end, my satsuma tree may have a few years with no fruit. But do you know why? The reason is it's no longer in that little pot. It's in my yard now. And it's digging its roots deeper and deeper into the soil and establishing itself more solidly to bear fruit in the future. And as you look at your own faith, you may not see the fruit that you want right now. And that's okay. That's actually normal and healthy a lot of the time. So you, who have incomplete and imperfect faith, dig your roots deeper. Connect more deeply with Jesus. And you'll see your faith bearing fruit in due time.